0: This episode of The Pillar Podcast is brought to you by Newman's Thoughts, an educational initiative from the Newman Institute for Catholic Thought and Culture. To read thoughts from St. John Henry Newman in your inbox each day, go to newmanthoughts.com.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, He's back from his vacation and he is ready to roll, Mister Ed Condon himself. Oh, I am so sorry, Doctor Ed Condon himself. Doctor, how you doing? Uh, please don't call me that. Don't call you what? Don't call me Doctor. The only that
0: that's that's something for BS senatorial candidates and you know people who are deeply insecure on Twitter. I don't. I don't. You you shouldn't use an academic title like Doctor. In, in your own address. That's just weird. What if I start
1: using it broadly? Like, so a doc, a, doc, a doctor is a teacher, right? I mean, that's what's happening there. Is a doctor... Docendi. Docendi, right? So what if I start using it broadly? What if I start... You can call uh, me teacher. I'm accepted. That's acceptable. No, I'm not going to call you teacher. But what if I start Rabbi. Calling- you could call me rabbi. I, I'm fine with that. I would like to start calling all the teachers in my life doctor. Like, I'd like to so universalize the term that anyone who offers me any instruction of any kind, or my children for that matter, anyone really... Who, uh, who who shows me how to do something or gives me a little bit of guidance, I'm going to start calling them doctor and, and just use it in the classical sense of, oh, teacher. But I'm not going to call you rabbi. That's that's weird.
0: Okay. But I mean, if you, if you do do that, then you will just basically be Italian.
1: Yes, I know. Exactly. I, Ed, I love being around the Italians in an ecclesiastical context, because as you know, I have a licentiate in canon law. But Italians are always calling me doctor, and I correct them. I say, "Oh no, no, I only have a license." And they say, "No, no, no, it's fine. You have many things to say, okay, doctor?" And I say, "Oh, yeah, okay." It's true. Well, no, it's if you get me a mortar l- board.
0: Yeah, if you're if you're a lay man or woman, a layman or a woman, I should say. There's no such thing as a lay woman. That's a tautology. They're all all women are lay. Um, but if you are a lay person working in a in any department in the Vatican and in most of Italian civil society, as near as I can tell. They will just call you doctor as a matter of course, and not like it conversationally or informally, but like it will be on letters. You will be addressed formally right. as doctor or doctoressa. Like it, it, as near as I can tell, if you if you make the coffee and empty the. Rubbish bins at the congregation for the doctrine, the for the doctrine of the faith. You will be officially styled doctor. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't matter? Like everyone is
1: a doctor, <laughs> with one exception. Um, I'll tell you something else that uh, I'll tell you something else that uh, I have found with the Italians that I like very much. If I go to give a talk somewhere in an ecclesiastical context and there are italians there like maybe it would be a communion liberation event or something else where a neocatechumen away something where there would be italians in america so i'm just trying to think of what that would be and i give a talk like and it's just hey we have jd he's this guy with a podcast and a news internet thing and he's here to give a talk if they're not calling me doctor they'll call me professor and it's like listen i am not do you have you had this happen to you where it's like i am not professoring in a meaningful sense right now at, at all i do teach a class at a seminary, but that hardly makes me a professor, qua professor But it's just, a, it's another universal term of sort of honor for a person expounding in any way whatsoever. And, and it's not good for one's humility, but it's, on the other hand, wonderful.
0: I, I used to, as you know, teach um, a couple of summer classes for a university in their graduate school. And um, I would frequent, the students would frequently refer to me as professor. When they, when they first encountered me were professoring. And I would forbid it. I would say, look, I am not a professor. If I were a tenured faculty member of this place, you would know because I would have it printed on t-shirts. And <laughs> I would leave you in no doubt that I had a job for life here. I am adjunct faculty. If you really want to call me doctor in the context of a classroom, you can, but really, Ed is fine. We're all consenting adults here. There's, you know, this is not third grade. I, I don't, yeah, I'm not worried.
1: Now I don't know at the seminary where I teach a class I a, and what I teach is sort of introduction to canon law and the reason is because they can scrounge somebody up basically but at at the seminary where I it's it's a very fine institution that's I'm just saying how I got the gig at the seminary where I teach a class I, I don't know what the rules are because seminaries are not like a gra- an ordinary graduate school where people might be on a first name basis part of it is a kind of formation and so I you know I don't know what the rules are about calling faculty members by their names or not. And I would be perfectly comfortable for the guys to call me JD. Some of them, you know, know me from other things like this or other things. And so it's sort of like, I'm not first sort of viewed as teacher for them, but as podcast guy or whatever, Uh, but I don't know the rules about this. And I don't want to be like some sort of subversive um, dead poet society guy, making them stand on the chairs and call me by my first name. So I basically just try to avoid having them call me by anything. As much as as much as I can, you just don't allow um, them to address you. Right? <laughs> it. Just seems more egalitarian than the alternatives, you know. And I don't want to get in trouble. You could erect a sort of
0: quasi BS parliamentarian manner for conducting your classes, <laughs> where you erected a sort of the fiction of a chair through which all questions right. had to be directed. Would the instructor affirm that? Da, 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 that would be that would be fun. You could only be addressed indirectly in the third person. That would be very funny.
1: Yeah, that would be. Well, my class starts on Monday. So I guess one way that I'll know uh, whether any guys in the class listen to the show is whether any of them refer to me only in the third person or um, or, or otherwise uh, act awkwardly with regard to what to call me, I suppose. Yeah. Another thing about that gig is that um, I don't know, in the refectory, I always, when I'm there, I always feel like, oh, I'm in the refectory, I'll sit with the guys because it's nice to get to know the guys and stuff like that. But I think that, I, I, I always feel like I'm not quite sure if I should sit with the faculty because again I'm just I just have like a contract to teach one class and those guys are over there talking about high high matters of theology and whatnot. And on the other hand I don't want to impose on the students. So usually Edward just out of a sense of uncertainty I end up eating lunch by myself in the cafeteria. <laughs> and I'm fine with that. I mean I'm I'm fine with it, but it's mostly just being uncertain about what the customs are, being there too infrequently to know what the customs are, et cetera. I just
0: Were you the kid who awkwardly navigated the lunch tables in high school? Were you did you also find it difficult
1: to find your tribe? I uh, I'll tell you the truth. Um I went to the lunchroom for about two weeks, freshman year, and then after that I started going to the library for lunch. And then I I had a You um... could eat in the library? Uh yeah, you could well, if you were kind of like I think that the librarian took pity on the kind of people who brought their lunch <laughs> to the library. Frankly, so I started going to the library for lunch, and then, um, and then I was editor of the school newspaper. So, like by my junior or senior year, I had a little, you know, a little officina, and so I would just go for lunch to work on the work on the paper. Um, of course, you did. <laughs> well, I mean, the paper had to get done, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I also had the anti banter. People are going to be displeased because there is a lot of news to talk about. Um, but I also had a, because of the newspaper thing, I had a key to the faculty bathrooms in my high school, which was a nice, nice perk of the job. I I imagine that would have been come in handy come senior prank time. Oh gosh, no. I just liked a quiet play and clean place to use you the You were a good kid in high school, weren't you? <laughs> God. Well, I mean, I didn't want to abuse the privilege.
0: Yeah, I bet you were a Boy Scout.
1: Um, yeah, of course. You didn't know that? No, I didn't, but
0: okay. yeah, I, I can guess. Boy. Oh, dear. Scouting is awesome. Well, I'm sure. I'm, I, I make no doubt. I, I'm sure that eating your lunch in the library is
1: great. <laughs> and, you know. When you put it that way. Yeah. Okay, listen. You were on vacation last week. We did not have a show. There is a lot of news. There, I mean, there's so much news that there's too much news to talk about all of it. Um, but a lot of things have been happening in the life of the church. On Saturday... Uh, the the Roman pontiff will elevate uh, 20 men to the College of Cardinals, completing what has been really, um, uh, and this happens in every papacy of some time, you know, the Pope has been Pope now for 10 years almost, so um, it's not like it's just like a Francis thing, but completing what has been, you know, really the, the, a Francis stamp on the College of Cardinals. We were looking at some numbers last night that will run, I think, um, on Friday and at the Pillar about kind of the Popes, uh, the the percentage of Cardinals who are appointed by the Pope who who would be eligible to to vote in the next conclave. So if a papal conclave were to happen, let's say on Monday, it'd be a little—I don't want to get into the tricky minutia of what would happen if a papal conclave were to happen today, but if a papal conclave were to happen on Monday, um, 64% of the uh, cardinals eligible to participate in the conclave as electors would have been appointed by Francis. 29% would have been appointed by Benedict XVI, and what percent do you think for John Paul II? Uh, nine percent. That's right, seven percent. Yes, seven percent of them would have been uh, el- eligible. Would have been appointed by John Paul the II. But if a papal conclave were to happen next year, uh, sixty-nine percent of the uh, cardinal electors would have been appointed by Francis, twenty-five by Benedict, six percent by John Paul the II. And if if a papal conclave didn't take place until twenty twenty-five, so that's now three three years away, eighty percent of the electors would have been appointed by Francis assuming the Pope didn't make more cardinals between now and then, 80% of the electors would have been uh, appointed by Francis, 16% by Benedict Sixteenth, and uh, this is very small, 81, 16, whatever that other very small percentage is, would have been appointed by John Paul II. Well, that makes
0: sense. I mean, yeah, I mean, just time marches on. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I don't know what percentage, off the top of my head, of cardinal electors uh, that returned...
1: Benedict oh, that's a great question. I hope I hope Brendan will JP put that into story. Yeah,
0: I bet it was well over eighty percent.
1: Yeah, and you know, there was Benedict's papacy was relatively short, all things being equal. So I suspect the percentage of cardinals who had been appointed by JP two who elected both Benedict and Francis is higher than would be the case in other cases. That's a really good question. I I, I wonder if Brendan, I hope Brendan might have the uh,
0: ability I'm to put sure that i sure he his will.
1: Story. He well, usually
0: has every base covered.
1: He usually does. He's a great, a great journalist, and uh, and do, doing really cool stuff. And uh, and so I've been really finding this cardinal stuff interesting. So on Saturday, the Pope will appoint, uh, or excuse me, elevate new uh, members of the College of Cardinals. It's a little interesting because um, being a cardinal is not a sacrament. Being named to the College of Cardinals is principally a juridic act, which is to say, um, you know, a, a, a human act of law. There's no spiritual change, ontological change, grace conferred at the time one becomes a cardinal. Um, but there is there is both the nomination of a person as a cardinal and then their um, elevation to the College of Cardinals at a consistory or a meeting when they actually kind of get a red hat and people start referring to them as cardinal and stuff like that. And I suppose in a certain sense, uh, that might be like the nomination and the installation of a pastor. Um, although um, a pastor... A pastor becomes a pastor when he takes possession of the office. When does a cardinal sort of take the rights and duties of being a cardinal, Edward? Uh,
0: well, we we tried to answer this the other day, a couple episodes ago, I think. And I remember looking over UDG, and it's—I I think it is from the moment the formal announcement is made. So what we've had is the, the sort of formal announcement of the pope's intention to— mm-hmm gazette if you like Mm -hmm. these new cardinals which is what will actually happen on saturday when the consistory meets the pope will sort of you know announce and formally enroll the new cardinal so it's not as you say it's not um it's not a sacrament it's not something that is conferred by you know in a a sort of liturgical way or anything like that so it's not the there's no moment of you know laying on of hands or something like that and the, the magic occurs and you you achieve the administrative rank of cardinal Right. Um, I think it's basically the, the moment when the consistory formally opens and the names of the new cardinals are read, as near as I can understand it.
1: Yeah. Um, a pastor, I just looked in the lot because I found myself curious exactly how this is phrased, because the installation of a pastor, the sort of ritual, liturgical installation of a pastor, often happens well after the pastor has been in the job. Um, 527, Kevin 527, one the person who has been promoted to carry out the pastoral care of a parish obtains this care and is bound to exercise it from the moment of taking possession. And so taking possession of the parish is distinct from the sort of, litur- can be distinct from the sort of liturgical act of, of installation. Sure, but there are, all, I mean, um, absent the duty
0: to participate in a conclave if one is suitably qualified by age, I, I'm not aware of any Duties that are attached to the cardinalatial state, other than to advise the Roman pontiff as he requests and directs. So whereas if you're a pastor and you're in the parish, even before you formally take possession, you still have a job to do. You still have to be offering the masses pro populum. You still have to be making sure the, the and you're functions still the of are juridic representative
1: of the parish. Yeah,
0: there's a whole set of legal obligations and, you know, functions of office that you have to have to be done. Someone has to be doing them. Whereas with a cardinal, you know, there's it's it's a pretty red hat and you, you do what the Pope tells you. That's pretty much Well,
1: it. you don't have a job until you do, right? So the reason it becomes relevant is you don't have a job until you do. And when you do is if there's going to be a conclave for the election of a new pope because of the death or retirement of the Roman pontiff. And uh, and so the, the, the reason this becomes relevant is the question of sort of what happens during this intermittent yeah. period with regard to... But a conclave, we always know when about. the pope is
0: going to resign. I mean, it, it's always... They, he always makes very clear there's suspicious activity around the Vatican. Um, you know, bishops start showing up. Um, and, and monsignors and priests are seen at mass in St. Peter's. And... You know the the usual in depth papal sources like Megyn Kelly, you know are, are are usually good at telegraphing long in advance, so we know
1: Ed is being uh, Ed is being clever, as it were. Is that is that right? No, I'm, I mean? I'm being ironical, JD. I am <laughs> saying
0: something while meaning the opposite. <laughs> cool.
1: Okay, uh, Edward. Um, so that's one thing that's happening is the Pope is uh, elevating men to the Sacred College of Cardinals on Saturday. Um, but some other things have happened in the life of the Church lately that we wanted to talk about. You're giving me eyes. Yeah, I was.
0: Well, I mean, do we. we there are some people apparently going to turn up to the Consistory on Saturday that caught my attention as a news item. Hey. Eh? Well, Cardinal Angelo Becciu. Oh allegedly... yes,
1: sure. Right. So Cardinal Angelo Becciu is intended, pillar reader. Cardinal. Pillar reader, Cardinal Angelo Becciu, who's on trial for uh embezzlement extortion abuse of offers, fraud of office conspiracy intimidation of witnesses these things uh cardinal angelo betchu um the uh you know we need a name we, we need to start calling him like the sardinian stallion or something don't you think no you don't uh, think you don't think, not you think not the sardinian stallion no but we do need a name like that i mean we need some sort of what about angie name? the knife <laughs> the knife. Okay, well, no, because the
0: town in Sardinia that he is from, from, his hometown, yeah. where they call him affectionately Don Angelino, um, mm-hmm. is famous for their their switchblades. That's that's what the the town and the region is famous for. Is they make these artisanal knives that are yeah um, highly prized and and used in everyday life there for you know the the kidnapping and assassination of visitors and. uh the removal of stones from horses, hooves, and I'm sure other things do.
1: And he is, as it were, a very sharp cookie. So maybe Angelino the sharp. The sharp? Yes, yeah, that's, that's okay. good is, is sharp a noun? Can you be a sharp? Well, like the valiant or the brave or the sharp. Oh, I see. I see. now the keen. The keen, Angelino the keen. Angeline the keen. Keen Angeline. Okay. So this keen- is going work good. No, God. <laughs> So, Keane Angeline is coming to the, um, but that's a podcast, ladies and gentlemen. We're just talking here. Keane Angeline is going to the Papal Consistory, which is a series of meetings at which these men will be elevated to the Sacred College of Cardinals on Saturday, um, and uh, um, that is an interesting thing because Cardinal Betchu, you know, you will remember in 2020 was uh, was notified that he had sort of lost the rights and dignities proper to members of the College of Cardinals. You would like to make a point which is a point
0: of legal clarification he resigned
1: he resigned the, uh, the, the yeah, rights and right. privileges of at the request the of the holy father he resigned the rights and privileges of proper to members of the college of cardinals while not resigning membership in the college of cardinals as such um and that was because of this financial scandal which had um wrapped him up pretty well um and uh in 2021 he was indicted uh I think 4th of July or sometime around there. He 3rd of July. The 3rd of July, 2021. He was indicted along with many others. A trial began. The trial is still ongoing. The trial seems set to go forever because uh, in the next round of the trial, there is a plan to call to the stand 200 witnesses. These are the witnesses of which team, Ed? Uh, both this is yeah uh, because this is an inquisitorial process so it doesn't work the same way that our process works where first the prosecutors call witnesses and then the defense call witnesses instead everybody gets to sort of nominate witnesses to the judge and then the judge can call those witnesses and 200 witnesses have been nominated now the judges don't have to call all 200 witnesses they have discretion. no but I hope they will <laughs> they have discretion so you know probably would not be the case but um, but still there's there is a lot happening with this it's not nearly over um, some elements of the trial have seem to confirm um, behavior which is not consistent with the mandates of his office on the part of Cardinal Bechu, um, and yet he announces that he has been restored, um, that, that he's been invited by the Pope to the consistory, and he says the Pope is going to restore his rights and dignities proper to the cardinalatial state um, in, in the not-too-distant future as well. Ed, what are we to make of that? So there are a couple of interesting
0: data points in this little story. Uh, the The first is that, obviously, the first we learned of this was Cardinal Becciu, in making this whole thing public in the course of a homily given in his hometown excuse in me, Sardinia.
1: Excuse me, Keen Angeline.
0: Angie the Knife, um, mentioned all of this in his homily uh, in his hometown in Sardinia, where he was celebrating Mass on Sunday and said, so you'll all have to excuse me if I'm not here next week. I'll be in Rome, busy. The Holy Father, you know, called me yesterday and he said, I have to come to the consistory. And of course I was invited and he's going to, you know, rehabilitate me and restore all my rights and privileges. And I mean, the first thing to know is that this is not the first time that Pope Francis has uh, extended a a sort of friendly and pastoral hand to Cardinal Betchew since he's been on trial or indicted. You know, last year he was, um, the Pope went to his apartment and the Vatican and celebrated a private mass in his apartment for Holy Thursday. And everyone, including the Cardinal and the Cardinal's brother, who also sort of amplified all of this on Facebook this week, uh, were insistent that this is, you know, the Pope is rehabilitating him. He's bringing him back into the fold. He's going to be back in a curial job soon. And of course, none of that ever happened. Instead, what happened was charges were filed against him. So, you know, you want to take the initial announcement from Cardinal Betschew with a with a tiny pinch of salt, because uh, he has given he has given from time to time to hyperbole yes um in the ordinary manner of the way in which Italians tend to speak and uh, on the other hand he's definitely going this has been effectively confirmed by the Holy See not in an official statement I, in one of what I found to be the most surreal things I have ever read in Catholic media vaticannews.com so the which holy is the
1: state the Holy Sees it's Pravda yeah I mean it's, it's 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 corporate newsroom so to speak yeah, it's it's yeah. the it's the Holy See's official media outlet. And it doesn't even have the so like Catholic News Service is the official media outlet of the US Conference of Catholic Bishops, but it has it has a claim to Editorial independence. In fact, it's it's I'm gonna just explain this. It has a claim to editorial independence. It's journalists are unionized. The union contract with management says that they have editorial independence. Now, whether you think that's true or not, whether you think they actually exercise editorial independence or not is another story. But they they make a claim to editorial independence. They say, sure, we're owned by the bishops, but we're not we don't just write down what the bishops tell us. Vatican Media is not even that. It's very clearly just this is the sort of state. Everyone who works there is apparatus an employee of the, of the of, church, right? With no guys of communications, yeah. with no guys of sort of editorial independence or something like that. It, it's not claiming to be that. It's just saying this is the state, uh, part of the state's communication apparatus or the this church's communication how, apparatus. Yeah, this right. is how the Holy See gets news out
0: into the public yeah. Mm-hmm. sphere. Yeah. So, um, anyway, Vatican News covered this and said that you know uh, Cardinal Betsu had has said all these things and confirmed that he would be coming to the consistory at the invitation of Pope Francis but that went on to quote anonymous curial sources right to say well of course there's many ways that he could be invited and it doesn't necessarily mean the pope is going to be rehabilitating him and restoring his rights and privileges he could just be invited effectively as yeah, a Yeah this would be system. like
1: if Pillar Media put out a pre- our little Pillar Media puts out a press release about something that we're doing and then in the middle of the press release it's like sources close to Pillar Media told
0: Pillar Uh, media. (laughs) Pillar media.
1: It's like, wait a minute, what? What is happening here? Well, and
0: so what you can pick up from that basically is that Pope Francis did this and he didn't tell anyone he was doing it. And everyone in the Vatican has got their hair on fire saying, oh God, what's happening? What's going on here? Right. And they, and no one, you know, they, they basically needed to put out an, an authoritative or at least quasi official interpretation of how they want this event to be spun. But they were so unsure of what the Pope was actually up to that no one was willing to put their name on it which I thought was really very deeply, deeply funny, Um, especially because Vatican news have in the past been more than a little snotty about media outlets that use um, anonymous
1: I didn't know that, but anyway, so it
0: was more than a little funny, but let's get back to the thing here. But let's get back to the thing. So, I mean, on the one hand, it is perfectly possible Cardinal Benchuk could just be going to the consistory at Pope Francis's personal invitation and the idea is that he'll just sort of sit quietly at the back as a spectator. Or he might come processing in with all of the other cardinals in full fig
1: and seated with everyone else as an equal. And if he does that, he will have... Because the th- consistory is not only the elevation of the cardinals in a kind of ceremony. It's also, formally speaking, a meeting of the cardinals to talk about stuff. And Correct. Although those meetings, the consistory meetings, the in-session consistory meetings tend to be... Relatively scripted affairs The the sort of coffee breaks are not the coffee breaks are when cardinals get to know each other But although those things tend to be relatively scripted affairs What that would be saying if he was there as a regular participant would be effectively He back he back yeah. He would have I I would argue a very credible um,
0: Argument to make saying he had de facto been restored as an ordinary mm-hmm. member to, member of the college of cardinals with all the rights and privileges thereof um, which would be an interesting move because, of course, Cardinal Becciu is on trial in Vatican City and to have such a public display of favor from the chief judge of Vatican City, uh, I, I find it hard to see a way in which that wouldn't be construed as a message to the court. Um, but, you know, we'll, we will see. I, It's... <laughs> It's very interesting. I mean, I've seen a lot of people claiming that, like, you know, the you know, this is all down to the Pope is saying, well, this isn't about saying, you know, Cardinal Becci is innocent or guilty. It's just about saying he has the presumption of innocence. innocence like right. But of course. Cardinal Betsu had the legal presumption of innocence when
1: the Pope ordered him to resign his rights and privileges in the first place. In fact, he hadn't even been indicted. He hadn't even been indicted. You know, it at was that just. Point. It was not even at that point. It was not even Cardinal Betsu has been has resigned the rights and privileges of a cardinal because he's been indicted. It was because of behavior which the Pope judges to have been inappropriate or un- unbefitting the dignity of a cardinal. Right, and had Bet lost the here. papal trust, most importantly. Right, yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. is,
0: of course, one of the key criteria for actually being a functioning member of the College of Cardinals is you're pope, the Pope's confidant. So if you don't have the Pope's trust, you can't function that way. Um, but here's the interesting thing for me is I always argued, and there were people at the time in September 2020 when Betchew was sacked from his curial positions and made to resign uh, his rights as a cardinal. A lot of people said that this is Francis not observing due process. This is him rushing to punish and all those other things and i've always maintained that actually everything the pope did in that particular window was entirely appropriate and in fact um very carefully judged so he didn't strip cardinal betchu of the title of cardinal he didn't Mm. kick him out of the college Mm -hmm. he basically said you're suspended from active membership of the college while you're under criminal investigation and now indictment and on trial Mm -hmm. and you obviously have to resign your job as a member of my governing cabinet of this sovereign entity that is the Holy See, both of which I think is totally normal. If we had, if you had a member of the cabinet of any credible government of any um, country in the world, and the member of the cabinet was under first criminal investigation, then indictment, and then on trial in open court, they would be expected to step aside, to resign
1: over the and, course and of And all that. the more because the church is not principally, the, the church is um, instrumentally, a sovereign state and in international law right. but it is principally the the sacrament of salvation as lumen gentium says so all the more that this person that a person who is an advisor to um, the successor of of uh, of saint peter and the vicar of christ on earth and at the same time thought to have acted acted with, um, acted in a violation of integrity against the church herself, right? So, you know, acted in a manner of of injustice against the church herself or infidelity against the church herself, yeah.
0: But I mean, my point is that all of these things um, that were, all these actions that were taken against Cardinal Petsu in in September 2020 is is what you would expect. And it doesn't, again, it doesn't punish him. It's not, uh, you're cast out into outer darkness. You're exiled from the Vatican. He kept his Vatican grace in favor apartment. He again, officially kept the title of Cardinal, has been wearing red and, you know, Mm. going around doing his thing. You know, he's not been under arrest or anything like that. It's just an ordinary thing you would expect while the legal process was in train. Until he was
1: was indicted, as a practical matter, there was very little day-to-day difference between the life of Cardinal Betschew and the life of uh, other Cardinals without jobs, Cardinal Mueller or Cardinal Burke or other Cardinals without sort of official Vatican you know, jobs or, dio- or diocesan sees or something like that. Now, when it came, when it would come to a liturgy or something like that, there would be some liturgical differences because of the things which are privileges of cardinals, but on the whole day to day, yeah, he was cardinaling around.
0: Yeah. And, and so to, to say that, you know, for the, for the appearance of propriety, for the importance of due process, for the safeguarding of rights on all sides, including the rights and dignity of the governance of the Holy See, you can't have someone who's on criminal trial, serving at the highest levels of government that's just that that's self-explanatory and it doesn't prevent those rights and privileges being restored if he's exonerated or um, found not guilty or the pope giving him another job after the conclusion of his trial press it just says you know yeah you're you're on the sidelines while you're under criminal prosecution sorry that's Mm -hmm. just how it is so it does seem to me that if the Pope does make some effort to either in either legally or de facto rehabilitate Cardinal Becciu, I mean, this is, it's a message. He's sending a message to the court, whether he, whether the Vatican press office um, want want to um, try and spin it a different way or not. I mean, that's, that's what it is. And it's, it, it's, uh, it's not great for the credibility of the trial and as people who have listened to me or read me boring on about this for a long time know I have already raised significant concerns about the extent to which the judges or the prosecution might be coming under pressure to perhaps call fewer witnesses or not call witnesses like former Auditor General of the Vatican, Libero Malone, or former Prefect of the Secretary for the Economy, Cardinal Pell, who might, you know, air a lot of awkward facts about their dealings with Cardinal Becciu in the past in the Curia and the finances of the Secretary of State. And so, this to me is just another possible indication of how free is this legal process from interference. And I mean, we will see. I, I live in hope. It, I, I have said all the right the way along. The Pope's legal reforms and finances have been historic. The fact that Cardinal Bechi is on trial at all is entirely down to the fact that anyone is on trial for this right. is entirely down to Pope Francis being willing to authorize the investigation, be willing to sign search warrants when necessary. To give the investigators a lot of um, a lot of rope to go out and do what they felt they needed to do. So you know he has he Pope Francis has made this all of this up to this point possible. I hope he then doesn't you know sort of pull on the leash and yank them all back. Which again I can't rule out because that has been if you like the real hallmark of the Francis financial reforms, is he comes out blazing great guns and appoints people like Pell and Maloney and announces a slew of seismic changes to how the Vatican does business and how their money is managed and how accounting happens and transparency and all this stuff. And then figures like Cardinal Betchew um, storm into his office, you can't do all of this. This is terrible. we, we you know, we're going to, this is not how we do things. And then the whole process gets rolled back. And then right. the tide comes in again and it goes out again. And basically whoever's the last person to have a persuasive conversation with the Pope over the course of the last 10 years has determined the, the ebb and flow of the Pope's financial reforms. And so I hope that having, um, having created this entire trial and legal process, the Pope is not now being prevailed upon to try and put the genie back in the bottle.
1: But we will see. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I was talking to a friend yesterday who asked me if I think that the curial reforms of Predicata Evangelium will stick and uh, so to speak and um, and 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 some of them I pointed out are aesthetic right I mean mm-hmm. changing the name of the congregation to a dicastri is aesthetic and some of them are not nearly what people have made them out to be um, you know there was a great fanfare I think we've talked about this on the show before but there was a ton of fanfare about the idea that lay people could be the prefects of dicastries under predicate evangelium and then like you know, a, a, a huge footnote that was mostly missed, which said effectively, except for the ones that have authority, you know, that have, except have for power the and authority that, yeah. or, that do things, right? Um, and so it was not, it was not the kind, it, it, in a certain way, it is um, uh, it, it is sort of symbolically significant, but it's not, it's not a sort of change in kind in any way whatsoever, because it was not sort of saying lay people can be the prefects of decaturage which exercise the power of governance or, or something like that. So those things are just, that could have been done anyway, actually, right? It wasn't like Predicate even done, did something to— a layperson right. could have been appointed the president of the Pontifical Council for Culture before before that, right? Um, right. Yeah. Uh, so, um, but, but the financial reforms, the idea of sort of getting things on a unified balance sheet um, and uh, sticking to something that looks uh, a little bit more like a budget and having some accountability to that budget— um, those reforms are significant and and so are, I think embedded in predicate is a sense of um procedural reform too that there, that procedures that there will be efforts made um, and maybe it's only sort of directional rather than um, delineated but but that um, procedures will not go to Rome and uh, and languish that there will be a sort of um prioritization and reorganization of the way that, the things that dioceses need from the Vatican, various kinds of permissions or approvals or those kinds of things, will be just sort of updated so that they can move a little bit more quickly, and things won't kind of be thought to go to Rome and then just die on a shelf. Um, but all of those things that where the rubber meets the road, the, the the financial things, the organizational systematic things, the sort of even accountability measures that are built that are sort of baked in. Um, those are well laid out ideas about um, organizational health for the Roman Curia, Mm -hmm. but whether they, um, whether they're manifested or not, whether they sort of take root or whether or not they only exist on paper while the Holy seat continues to do what the Holy seat does has a lot to do with whether someone will have like both the persuasive power and the will to see them come to the fore in Rome, like to actually put them into practice. And I don't see that happening um, in this, papacy, because um, the major sort of cardinal figures at the Holy See right now uh, have many other things on their plate, or they're having their issues which are arising, which make it difficult for them to do that. You know, Paralene has so many sort of other things going on, and Paralene has, in, in a certain way, one element of the of the reforms was that Paralene and his dicastery lost the confidence of the Holy Father to ex- exercise certain administrative prerogatives, um, and, uh, and so... I don't see it happening, and and the, the Pope himself does not seem to be a detail guy in, in the sense that he wants to sort of be exactingly doing this stuff, plus um, what we have seen, even since the promulgation of Predicate Evangelium, the Pope's curial reform just a few months ago, is a kind of chipping away at some of the more significant parts, and this week we saw a kind of major reversal, even, of a part of the Pope's curial and financial reform that he's been working on for years, and it was a kind of a reversal that just kind of came out of left field. Would you well, not say?
0: I, I wouldn't call it a reversal. I'd, I, I'd say it was the opposite of reverse. It was a, a doubling or tripling down of a, of a reform. Well,
1: because what I mean is APSA had been built up and empowered. APSA had been, sure. been built up and empowered. APSA had been built up and empowered. Whoop. APSA is out of the loop on a lot of things. Yes, there's definitely that. I mean,
0: there's... The, but this is, you know, again, when I said that the the sort of tide, the ebb and flow of the financial reforming tide in the Vatican has been obvious in the last couple of years. One of the ways you, you've you seen that is there has been this tug of war between APSA and the Secretariat of State and the um, Secretary for the Economy about who has control or oversight of what, and powers and responsibilities have been were moved into absa then moved out of absa and then moved back into absa and as you say it was built up as being this is going to be the place where all the vatican business is done this is going to be the thing that watches all the vatican's money Um, they're going to be the sole sovereign wealth manager asset manager investor everything for the whole roman curia it's all going to absa which is a huge change taking away from all of the different departments and saying you're all going to give your money to absa and absa is going to take care of it all for you and you know was that was the that was what praedicate did when it was promulgated and then <laughs> this week um the pope issued as you said a, 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 an authoritative interpretation of this provision in praedicate that said
1: not by virtue a, of an instruction to a Sponte, but by virtue of a rescript or request for clarification on this yes, effectively uh
0: effectively and what is fascinating is this clarification said oh yeah when when it says absa is in charge of all um immovable or movable investments so real estate and cash and investments and stuff like that um and it has to transact all its business through the ior the vatican bank so-called um, what we actually meant was the ior is the asset manager and right. has exclusive <laughs> competence yeah. over everything we except said for the real Apsa estate we'll
1: do this what we meant is the ior will do this yeah what we meant and was you the should IOR. read and and we're not changing the norm we're just saying you should read this part that says apps will do this to to, to mean something to completely mean different. The IOR will do it, right, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. to mean that we will actually have nothing to do with it. So which, big picture, what does that sort of suggest? I mean, what is the input? I,
0: what does it suggest? I have absolutely no idea. I have not heretofore seen... I mean, the IOR has been in the course of this whole trial and financial scandal have been kind of the the lonely picked on good guys in the corner who, you know, it was they. It was the director and president of the IOR that triggered the investigation into all of this because the secretary of state lent on them for 150 million euro loan that they're like, well, this looks sketchy as so I'll get out and we're not going to say yes to it. And then you had Paralene writing to the bank's president saying, this is for the, you know, ultimate overriding priorities of the Holy See. How very dare you, you will approve this. And you had Archbishop Pina Parra ordering, and they've said this in open court. Um, ordering retaliatory investigations into the bank's director for daring to reject the loan application and everything, uh, and and to their credit, these guys held their nerve and they and they went to as near as I can tell the ASIF, the Vatican's financial watchdog, and said this looks really sketchy, and they basically said, ah, whatever, we don't care, it's nothing to do with us don't bug me, we're all making lots of money from the Secretary of State with side contracts, so we'd prefer not to think about this. Mm-hmm. And and they didn't take no for an answer. They went straight to the Pope and the Vatican Prosecutor's Office and said, will someone please look at this? And the Pope signed a bunch of search warrants and everything. So the IOR have been kind of the, the most credible for a couple of years now financial institution the Vatican has. Um, it's the only place that's still largely staffed and run by Pell era appointees. And you know, they've kind of been, I mean, the other thing is they're not technically um, a dicastery of the Roman Curia. They're not a department of the Roman Curia in the way that the Secretary of State is or APSA is. They're a commercial bank in Vatican City. Right. They have a board of governors. Yes, it's owned by the Holy See and the governors are appointed by the Vatican. But, you know, legally it operates as a, it's a high street bank. It yeah. takes deposits from Vatican employees. It lends money on commercial terms. It, you know, all of this stuff. And so giving it exclusive competence over the Holy See's asset portfolio is kind of a huge deal. deal. But, I mean, yeah. I've never detected in anything over the course of the scandal and trial and everything um, any sympathy for the IOR, any sense that the Pope was getting fed up with Bishop Nuncio Gallatino, who runs APSA, and you know who makes frequent public appearances, saying, we're doing great, uh, Sometimes when they are doing quite well and sometimes when they're doing terribly, he still says we're doing great uh, or, or anything like that. I mean, it's it's just, it's not been on the cards and it's been at no point has the IOR been, if you like, um, a point of reference in this sort of departmental tug of war over control of Vatican investments. So it's yeah. it's very weird. And uh, the last thing I'll say on this is, of course, that you know, to say, what does it suggest? I have no idea what it suggests. It doesn't make any sense to me. This seems to have come out of nowhere, but what does it mean is it does mean that all Vatican business, is going to be subject to international standards and inspections because the IOR is the only financial institution in the Vatican that's subject to money vol inspections. And so there's going to be no more off-balance sheet transactions by Vatican dicasteries because if everything's being managed by and through the IOR, that's all going to be there to be inspected. And that's a huge change.
1: Yeah, that's right. Okay, Ed, when we come back from uh, commercial, we're going to talk about something completely different. Um, But first, this word from our... Sponsor. Ed, uh, this week's episode of The Pillar Podcast is sponsored by Newman's Thoughts, an educational initiative from the Newman Institute for Catholic Thought and Culture, which um, is meant to encourage uh, people to read St. John Henry Newman and to bring his thoughts and his ideas um, into the conversation of today's church. I'm a big... uh, I'm a big fan of uh, of St. John Henry Newman. I've been reading Newman for a long time and and I think Newman is really important. But I also know that sometimes when I kind of talk about Newman to people or say that Newman is important, they're kind of like, well, where do I start? And things like, uh, and, and some of Newman's most sort of um, significant works uh, seem often to be um, unapproachable or or difficult to get into. And so this uh, project, Newman's Thoughts, is meant to um, help people to sort of take Newman in bite-sized chunks, short digestible readings in their inbox each day, and then um, uh, a short podcast each week with some context and scholarship and thought about Newman from scholars and people with special devotion to Newman, reflections from people on the wisdom contained in his writing. So if you always sort of heard about Newman, but not like been into Newman, this seems like a really cool project to kind of get into what he was all about.
0: Absolutely. And all the more so because season one is, as I understand, they're doing um, Newman's The Idea of a University, which is actually, I mean, you are a 24 karat Newman nerd and I I don't claim to rival you in that respect but of of Newman's writings that I have read and of um, Newman's thought that I have uh, I do have a lot of respect and um, affinity for uh, I love the idea of a university I think it's I don't I'm not sufficient enough of a Newman scholar to say it's his best work or it's his most accessible or whatever it's just the one that I've I've read the most and liked the most and find myself thinking about the most because it's I mean, it is about the idea of a university, but it's also the idea about virtue and education. and Freedom. Freedom and the development of thought and conscience and good habit. And, you know, it, it is, like I said, is my favorite work of Newman. And the idea of breaking that down and sort of delivering it in um, in chunks along with context and uh, unpacking it a bit on a daily basis sounds pretty really cool. I mean, the other thing that they're doing um, as I understand it, is that it's it comes along with a sort of devotional aspect that also includes Newman's prayers and and things like that. And I think that's that is a great thing about having a serious intellectual heavyweight who is also a saint in the church is, you know it can it can fuel both mind and soul that way that it's possible to both think and pray with a saint. and i and I really like that.
1: yeah, you know, idea of a university has a really interesting history. A, a lot of people have read it. A lot of people don't realize the sort of very unusual set of circumstances by which it came about. And if you're interested in learning about that, I'd wager that signing up for Newman's Thoughts, this educational initiative from the Newman Institute for Catholic Thought and Culture, will tell you what it's all about, where it came from. The official journey of Newman's Thoughts begins on September 1st. Um, and listeners who subscribe will receive day-by-day reading, a day-by-day readings guide that you can follow at your own leisure and then go back to past episodes to enjoy expert commentary at your own pace. The really interesting thing about this is that it's all free. Newman's Thoughts is a project of the Newman Institute that's just aiming to help people better understand Newman and what he can contribute to the life of the church. So if you're interested in um, this Newman's Thoughts project, Ed, what can you do? Uh, you can find out more by going to newmanthoughts.com. Okay, Ed, we are back uh, from commercial. I don't know what's going on in that commercial break, but I'm sure it was great. Uh, I was actually—while you were having the commercial break, I just took a minute to just read some uh, some writing There's a saint I like named John Henry Newman, so I just took a couple minutes during the commercial break to read some stuff from St. John Henry Newman. I don't know what you all were doing. But anyway, this week, the Church in the United States saw the death of of a bishop, a a noteworthy Um, bishop—you might even say notorious—a noteworthy bishop, Uh, we saw the death of— Archbishop Rembert Weekland, formerly of Milwaukee, who is one of the most, um, I don't even think it's fair to say controversial, just sort of ignominious, yeah, um, bishops in American Catholic history. The reason I don't want to say controversial is because I actually think there's very little controversy about him. There might have been. Weekland Weekland was the bishop, was a Benedictine monk who became the sort of primate, the global, the universal primate of the Benedictine order, so exercising... Uh, Benedictine monasteries have an unusual sort of juridic, stat, you know, setup, but exercising some degree of primacy, we'll say, over Benedictines the world over, um, and, uh, and then became, was appointed by Paul VI, actually, the Archbishop of Milwaukee uh, in, I think, 1977, and was, you know, uh, was uh, had a relatively long tenure um, in Milwaukee. But uh, Weakland might have been controversial because he was uh, uh, extremely theologically Progressive, you could say. I mean, he was uh, it, theologically, he was um, the spirit of Vatican II incarnate. Perhaps Be- before the promulgation of Ordinatio Sacerdotalis, he spoke many times about the importance of the ordination of women. When when Ordinatio Sacerdotalis came out, this is I think to his credit. When Ordinatio Sacerdotalis came out, he said uh, in a statement, effectively, I don't agree with this, but um, the Pope has decreed it, and therefore I will accept it. And um, and that 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 I think says something. Um, but uh, he Let's was say He believed it. He didn't say believed it, um, but he said he it was. It is, of exactly, course, a something which one must believe. Um, but never mind. Never, at any rate, um, uh, he um, he was critical of humana vitae and um, and critical of the um, cr- critical of the sort of veritatis splendor interpretation of humana vitae, which says that sort of the things like sexual morality are not just matters of conscience, but matters of objective more uh, objective morality and and moral norms and. And, uh, and, and that conscience itself is not a thing which allows one to sort of deviate from, from moral norms. He was critical of, in many ways, the Church's emphasis on its opposition to abortion. He was regarded as a sort of liturgical innovator in many ways. Um, he was regarded as an innovator in um, in priestly life and ministry. Many priests of M- Milwaukee who served under Weakland have talked to me about his um, uh, his famous sort of push of priests out of the rectories and into apartments because he thought it would be better for a priest to live not in rectories, which he thought were sort of comfortable and also removed, but in apartments in which they would be more able to mix with the people. Leave that one alone. Um, Weakland might have been controversial. We might have been sort of debating what the impact of all of these ideas of Weakland were in the life of the church subsequent to his um, retirement and now at the time of his death. But all of that, all of those things that made Weakland kind of— um, a figure kind of of the far left who had both his admirers and his critics were overshadowed by the revelations that came out at the time of his 2002 retirement, when um, he was accused of having had a sexual relationship with uh, a much younger graduate student, and the and the, um, the man, whose name was Paul Marco, um, accused Weakland of, uh, of committing the act of date rape, of, of having raped him. Weakland admitted to the affair, said it was consensual, um, admitted that he had paid the man $450,000 in a settlement. Uh, of archdiocesan a, money. Of archdiocesan money with a confidentiality clause to settle the whole thing, um, expressed contrition that his behavior had caused scandal, but was insistent that, in fact, this was a consensual love affair, that he was in love and that their sexual contact had been consensual as well. But, re- but remained accused of, of uh, sexual assault. And uh, and subsequently, it emerged that Weakland had been among the most notorious uh, to move uh, um, priests accused of child abuse from one parish to another without sufficient uh, juridic intervention or notification to the, you know, or, or protection of the people of God, that Weakland had been one of those to sort of um, reinforce, not only sort of accept, but reinforce the idea that pedophilia was a, sickness which you know which should be treated not with um which there is a mental health component to it but which should be treated not with only justice but with um you know only therapeutic invention uh, interventions sort of with the omission of justice um go ahead you would like to say well something.
0: i was say not you you said it should be treated not only with justice but with it's my understanding that archbishop Weekly didn't think it needed to be treated right with that's justice what at all he I in said, fact disputed say. the criminality of the idea of
1: sexually abusing yeah, a child that's right yeah and and was and said at one point that um, when some a, of them were know, basically
0: very aggressive prepubescent teens who knew what they were doing and had a, i mean let's
1: just say people came on to archbishop, priests and yeah archbishop weakland's um archbishop uh, Weekland was a stereotype of the worst excesses of the sexual abuse crisis in His in the inability to distinguish
0: consensual from non-consensual sexual relationships extended beyond his personal experience
1: yes that's very well said that's very well said making him in a certain way. The face, uh, um, you know, the sort of a caricature, even of what you might think, but it, but true to life. But the face of the of clerical sexual abuse in the United States, both the allegations in his personal life and then his administrative misconduct in, in office, and and so, it, even people who might have otherwise said I agree with Weakland's theology, which would not be me, but e- even people who would have said I agree with Weakland's theology, you know, I I think have largely recognized that he his. Any, anything that he said has been so overshadowed by the things which he did and didn't do and the ways in which he covered them up as to make him completely notorious in the history of the church. And many people in Milwaukee say, you know, the church is still in various ways sort of cleaning up from the um, local wounds inflicted on the life of the church, on victims. Wakeland could be very aggressive toward victims. There are letters word in which he sort of excoriates victims for making accusations, these kinds of things. And the church is still... Um, having to respond to all of that and having to address all the things that Weakland uh, that Weakland did in his in his ministry as as, uh, as Archbishop of Milwaukee. So he died this week, and um, and again, not a controversial figure for the most part. Um, How old was he? <laughs> he was ninety five. Only the good die young. <laughs> but there was a bit of a to do that I, that I want to talk about for a particular reason. There was a bit of a to do because. Um, uh, a priest um, posted on social media this week a kind of glowing tribute to Weakland, saying that he was an erudite, uh, a gifted scholar, an erudite pastor, uh, saying very many praise things about him, and then saying that his um, legacy was marred by this uh, allegation of what he called a relationship with another man. Um, and people reacted vociferously to that. Did they not, Ed? Uh, I would describe the reaction as broadly negative yes to, that's right. to
0: suggest that for example archbishop weekland was a gifted and uh, you know very uh, caring pastor uh, to speak such of a man who said that he was broadly unconcerned with the victims of child rape because they should basically just grow out of it and uh, if they didn't ask for it in the first place and they probably did and you know this is a man who um you know, as I basically said, you know, it's, this isn't really abuse or rape. You know, this is this is this is a consensual relationship, and you know, it's you know, the the idea that such a person could be described as pastoral struck many people as outrageous and nauseating.
1: And so many people, when this priest, a, a member of the Society of Jesus, named, uh, hold on, I have it here somewhere, named. Um... Uh, James, I get, Father Father James Martin, I guess, uh, this member of the Society of Jesus, a Jesuit priest named Father James Martine, um, uh, p- posted this sort of glowing tribute uh, on social media, on Twitter, and many people responded to it very negatively. And then the priest doubled down and he said, uh, as people criticized him, he posted another post which was asked, do none of you have friends who sinned? And in fact, he posted that in response to someone who had posted a summary of some of the things that Weakland had been accused of doing, shredding shredding his copies of reports about abusive priests and these kinds of things. And of course, people responded uh, very angrily to that as well. It was interesting because it seemed to unite people um, within the church of from very different theological perspectives, all of whom who found this kind of defense of Weakland very, very inappropriate. And then the priest um, apologized. His first sort of pass in an apology said, uh, I'm very sorry um, that what I said... About Weekland was misinterpreted or was open to misinterpretation, but you know the Lord ate with sinners, and many people responded vociferously to that, and then eventually the priest sort of just apologized, apologized, and said, "I'm sorry about all of that, and I've deleted my posts." And okay, but what struck me about the whole thing was that um, this Father Martin is, a, um, you know, a, a pretty prominent, well-known priest, and je- and often co- times has been regarded as kind of an ally to people on the peripheries. He's made, uh, you know, he, he's made a lot of uh, uh, his uh, <laughs> made a lot of his reputation as an advocate for people who identify um, as LGBT. Although we've spoken with many Catholics who say that uh, his approach to those things does not especially resonate with them, but he's made that he's made that as a sort of central piece of his ministry and um, sort of identification with those on the periphery. But there seemed to be he seemed to not understand at all. This priest seemed to not understand at all why a kind of glowing tribute for a person who has this reputation would be so shocking and galling to so many people. Um, and it occurred to me, Ed, uh, you know, and, and 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 people kind of responded and responded and responded, but it occurred to me, Ed, that um, one of the differences, I think, one of the differences is that there is a—maybe this is what people call clericalism, but there is a—has been a pervasive attitude in the Church um, which uh, says that those who share our theological perspectives, our theological allies or our ideological allies or people who we just know who are our friends, you know, we sort of defend tribalistically because of our alliance with them. Or we we don't look at their uh, the, at their you know profoundly problematic records or we downplay or undermine their profoundly problematic records or suggest that Jesus would them. have been totally understanding it suggest suggested Jesus would have just been yeah whereas um, you know I mean to
0: I, I was left with the impression watching um, father Martin's uh sort of passes at apologies I I was late coming to this particular event because I, I've been I've been still enjoying the sort of remnants of my holiday and so I haven't been on Twitter as much as I I was previously, but it struck me that the implication uh, reading his Twitter feed as a whole would be that our Lord dines and loves and would sit comfortably next to uh, those who facilitated the abuse of minors in the church, um, but only if they like tambourines. That, for example, it was, as I, I subsequently discovered going over his, uh, his Twitter timeline, and Father Martin, for example, Said that it was extremely hurtful to the memory of abuse survivors that Cardinal former Cardinal Law of Boston, um, sorry Cardinal Law, formerly the Archbishop of Boston, uh, was buried uh, in a full fig ceremony in the in the Vatican or whatever, and that this you know giving this sort of public recognition to a man who had done so much damage to individual uh, victim survivors of sexual abuse, uh, to say nothing of the of the reputation and um, you know coherence and moral coherence of the church itself you know that this is a terrible thing that you know it would have been better if cardinal law had basically been quietly dumped in a pauper's grave and forgotten about um but this courtesy apparently uh this consideration for victim survivors doesn't extend to people that father martin and people like him liked that you know it's uh, you know jesus is not concerned with your crimes against children but he might be awfully concerned about your political beliefs was the was the was the tone of what i got from that
1: yeah and it's just, you know, since 2018, I think there has been just Jesus a radical with sh- Sinners, but
0: not conservatives was kind of what I got right. the impression
1: Yeah, I, I think that's right. I was struck in the course of this whole thing by the way in which there's been a radical shift for very many Catholics since 2018. And I would say, myself included, I think, of better recognizing the profound effects of um, clerical sexual abuse, partic- or of sexual abuse, particularly in the context of the church. I think before 2018, I would have been among many, many people who say, and and say correctly, that numerically sexual abuse occur, is far more likely to occur in public school or in families or these kinds of things. And that is true. It, it is it true. Is, yeah. But it's not the whole of the story. The whole of the story is that um, sexual abuse in the context of the church is, in a certain way, uniquely harmful and uniquely galling because of how directly it contravenes and undermines the church's efforts towards the salvation of souls. It and, and is as... Pope Benedict XVI reformed the law of the church to
0: reflect not just a sexual crime, it is a crime against the faith.
1: Right. That's exactly that's exactly right. A crime against the the new code talks about sexual abuse being a crime against the dignity of the person. Benedict has also described it as a crime against the faith. And so where once the law talked about it as a sin against the sixth commandment, That has been fleshed out to to talk about it as a crime in in two directions, a crime against the faith itself and a crime against the dignity of the person. Yeah, it is is
0: defined as a theological crime.
1: Right. Right Mm -hmm. alongside
0: violation of the seal
1: of confession, right along desecration of the sacrament. Right, right. Things which by their very nature profoundly undermine the freedom of the church to work for the salvation of souls and in fact, you know, have the effect of, of driving people from the life of the church in a very particular way and i think there's been a realization among that about that among a lot of people a greater sort of awareness about that among a lot of people and that's inspired i think a lot of people to say okay we need to it's not sufficient to say we've mostly handled this we need to be sort of far more vigilant about this and and far more aware of its consequences and far more committed to reparations and these kinds of things but but that attitude is not sort of universal and, you know, Father Martin, who in many ways is not sort of thought of as, oh, he sort of thinks like the bishops, I think evidence the fact that sort of institutionally, among, among people who are v- very well institutionalized, that attitude has not penetrated quite so much, such that the sort of old arguments about, well, he repented, or, um, uh, you know, well, we have to look at him, the person in totality, which seem to f- fail to appreciate the profundity of this thing. Not, not just you know, that, J.D., His go-to response was, but he was a friend of mine. Yeah, that was especially, especially pointed to this thing which Pope Francis has called clericalism, but which we could call sort of networks of ideological alliance By which these things have been allowed to happen in the church like that he would make this argument now basically says we haven't learned that a friend of mine can do these things or that a a person who does this is no friend of mine. Or a friend of mine should
0: suffer the consequences
1: for having done something like this.
0: Yeah. The consequences including your name is covered in odium in all eternity and you aren't buried with full honors and lionized and eulogized.
1: Yeah. When we first started reporting in, you know, more in depth about issues pertaining to sexual abuse and misconduct, you know, there were a lot of people who were still of the attitude, like, um, in all corners of the church, actually, like, well, we have to be... It was like, well, this is a problem that belongs to the other guys, and people who are on sort of our side wouldn't do this, or if they're tagged with this, it's probably not true because they're on our side. And, And you and I have taken the position... If you do that, it doesn't matter if you agree with us on every damn thing in the world. You're not on our side. De facto, you're not on our side if you're the kind of person who commits acts of sexual abuse, misconduct, assault against against another person, period. Um, and I, I think there's a degree to which Martin demonstrated that that attitude, the, that ideology and sort of alliance, theological alliance or personal alliance or whatever can still is still really impacting the way these things are handled. Martin sort of brought that to fore in a way that has been evident but unspoken mostly since 2018. yeah I would agree with that, that the the
0: I, I, this is not to say that it's only people who would share father Martin's no I don't think ideological it is bent no this is it, it is still an omnipresent yeah um, emotional default setting in in large and even people who don't share I mean I was reading the um the Archdiocese of Milwaukee's and the Archbishop of Milwaukee Archbishop Listecki's um, who doesn't
1: share martin's Martin's
0: ecclesiology at all put out a, a broadly you know muted but still broadly positive I would yeah. describe it um sort of oh, I
1: think of I think effusively positive actually. Yeah. Total, yeah.
0: And I just thought to myself, you know I I'm not suggesting that the Archbishop of Milwaukee should say of his predecessor on the occasion of his predecessor's death, well, he has the legal right to be buried in my cathedral, so I'll honor it, but I'm burying him face down so I can see the devil coming for him. You know, I, I'm not suggesting he should have said that, but I, I do not understand why, what possible motivation there is for issuing a sort of litany of his redeeming features when no, when no feature of the person's life or actions or thought or work can be considered redemptive next to the crimes that he committed that all there is to say is, he lived, he died, he died in odium, and we entrust him to the mercy of God. That is all there is to say about it. And the only reason I can think of why you would say such effusively positive, again, albeit muted compared to other people's testimonies of the man, um, is clericalism. He's, just, well, he's a brother bishop. I got to be nice about him. You know, living or dead, the guy wore a mitre, so I got to, you know, I got to say nice things.
1: I, I I can't think of any other reason. Can you? Yeah. Well, no. And to your point about it not being sort of only from a particular, uh, when we reported on um, on Cardinal Ouellette, on allegations of Cardinal Ouellette's um, allegations of misconduct, Cardinal Ouellette, the prefect of the Congregation for Bishops, is accused by a woman of, uh, I think this happened last week, is accused by a woman of having um, effectively groped her inappropriately when she was an intern in the Archdiocese of Quebec where he was Archbishop in the 1990s. Um, or excuse me, in the early 2000s. When we reported on that, we heard from people, actually, interestingly, people who are sort of a Father Martin's vintage or generation, but not would not share even a minutiae of ideology with him. But we heard from people who said like, well, Cardinal Ouellette is a good guy, so this is probably political, you know? And mm-hmm. um, I, I don't completely deny the possibility that it's possible that these kinds of things are... Pl- Political. although it's not the Occam's razor explanation by any stretch of the imagination. It's not in my experience or, or observation the most likely explanation and there are any number of possible explanations that situation has not been fully investigated or explicated. but but there are but uh, th- th- that th- that it's like, well, this person is a good guy in these ways and therefore this is obviously not true reflects again that same sort of um, propensity towards um, ideological self-protection. Or ideological wagon circling that has been so pervasively damaging in the life of the church over the last probably many right.
0: years. Right. And, and and while this is not something I would say of Cardinal Ouellette because it's it, it's not there to be said is true. But um, so apart from his case, but taking that you know what you're saying about the 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 reflexive is to say, well, this is one of our guys. This is a good guy. It's probably not true. The next step beyond that is almost inevitably is, And even if it is true, he's still one of our guys. And, you know, we got to we gotta stand by him and do the right thing by him and make sure that, you know. And, and, now, we didn't hear people say that. No, I didn't. I that said, not, this, is not, about this right. is not about Willette. This is not about Willett. I'm saying as a right. general principle, that is the next step, which is where we were with Father Martin. Martin is which is
1: ordinarily is, covered with, with things like, Well, because, you know, Jesus ate with sinners, you know, none of us is perfect. Yeah, right, exactly. So there is a way in which kind of cancelate—I don't want to talk about cancel culture—but there is a way in which sort of um, the opposite of that can go to extreme, where anyone who is accused is perceived to be guilty automatically, right? I mean, there is a way in which due process can be ignored, both in the public square and in the Church's own procedural mechanisms, and and that's not healthy either. No, Um, not at all. uh, But then again, did Cardinal Willock get due process— no cardinal this willett was the only thing that process, i right? i
0: stopped my vacation for was to write about this and i know you wrote about it too i wrote um, about it i had a long thing for the newsletter but I to scrap it because so much stuff happened <laughs> well i yeah no i wrote about it in my, in my newsletter last week too about you know it, i i'm unpersuaded at the idea that the allegations themselves against cardinal willett are politically
1: motivated just because it doesn't it's just the, not. The, it's not a particularly convincing idea. The origin and
0: timeline and development of the whole thing doesn't strike me as. It's. It's. If, if your goal is to sort of publicly undermine Cardinal Ouellette, that's. This is not how you go about it. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, I am perfectly prepared to believe that the way the allegations were received and handled at the Holy See was political. Um, that strikes me as extremely persuasive because there are plenty of cardinals or archbishops, like for example. Uh, Former Archbishop of Paris, Michel
1: opeti who was mm-hmm. fired for summarily, without, as I can tell, for any something process. which is having sort of an ambiguous, quote unquote, ambiguous relationship, you know, during when he was a priest, which all Holy knew about when they appointed him a bishop, right, yeah. um, and and
0: had committed, as near as I can tell, nothing approaching a, a canonical delict, and no, um, certainly had committed no no um, alleged criminal activity uh, or canonical delictual activity as a bishop he was summarily fired um on Willette's watch and yet Willette seems to have been the subject of uh, not exactly the same but similar allegations and yet it was just sort of quietly kept on the back burner for 18 months and someone with no obvious qualifications to investigate them had a couple of zoom calls and said mm, let's just stick a pin in this i i find that curious yeah yeah
1: yeah it it is um the inconsistency, the disparity of due, of of the possibility of due process is its own problem, right? And 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 whether that the degree to which that ties into sort of ideological um, affinity is it, it, complicated, right? Because it does not seem as if it's cut and dry that these kind of people get this, and these kind of people get this um, when it comes no. to accusations against bishops or something like that. We can name conservatives who are you know conservatives who are in office despite manifest evidence um, of uh, of all kinds of shenanigans um you know enough that you could make a, a a Johnny Cash song out of them and and then we could name you know uh, people who seem not to have gotten justice who who would not be identified as conservatives so so it's not it's not consistent it's not intelligible or sensible as yet and it's not um,
0: justice as a result
1: right that's right exactly that's exactly right. So, I, I but I do think you know just identifying the pervasiveness of what I guess is being called clericalism of this sort of um, I yeah propensity towards institutional and ideological self protection which prevents a sort of honest reckoning with um, the misdeeds of people who we characterize as our friends has been contributory to everything that has happened so to speak on this front and clearly. Has been demonstrated is not not resolved.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: I mean, it goes back to
0: the same thing with you know inviting Cardinal Betsu to the Consistory this week. Is you know, what what does this mean in terms of due process? Is he is he formally reinstated? Is he right. is he back with? It? Is he supposed to go to the next? Con- Nobody knows. But there's no due process. There's no official clarification. There's no. There's only. He's a friend of ours. He can come.
1: And it is tricky. It is tricky to make sense of that sort of um, pragmatically. Uh, juridically, theologically, legally. It can also be tricky, and I think, to make sense of that spiritually, which we've talked about before. But one person who has helped me a great deal to make sense of these things spiritually is St. John Henry Newman, whose sense of history in the life of the Church and controversy in the life of the Church and its spiritual significance significance of suffering is—and I'm not just, you know, saying this because it's a bunch of, is really significant— And with that said, this week's episode of the Pillar Podcast was sponsored and brought to you by Newman's Thoughts, an educational initiative from the Newman Institute for Catholic Thought and Culture. If you're interested in Newman's Thoughts uh, on the life of the church and the spiritual life in your inbox each day um, for free, check it out at newmansthoughts.com. And Ed, this has been a great episode, and I look forward to talking with you real soon.
0: That was so seamless. I'm going to be thinking smooth, about it all right? weekend. I know that I, was
1: amazing. Smooth. Hey, I do what I do. The uh, people think hosting is uh, is an easy gig. Um, you make it look easy. Hosting ain't easy yet. Um, but the Pillar Podcast is uh, a production of Pillar Media and Ednd Production. I'm your I'm your silky smooth host, apparently. And Pillar Editor in Chief J.D. Flynn, joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder Ed Condon. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira, and we'll be back real soon. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Pillar Podcast. It's been a while. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Pillar Podcast. Third time's a charm. What do I say?
0: Hey, everybody, welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic.
1: That's right. You do it. Say it how I say it and we'll use that. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Pillar Podcast,
0: the great Catholic podcast that brings you great. Nope, nope, even I'm going to.